I'm Dave Gerard. I'm co-founder and CEO of Upstart. And I'm panicked about becoming an empty nester. How you doing? I'm doing good. Occasionally, Knut. Yes. We get, well, everybody's smart that agrees to come on this show, mainly because they have this idea of what I may be like, and then they immediately are like, oh my God, time stands still. For and then they get so disappointed. Kidding. Anywho, this guest is, we have a lot of smart CEO guests. We have venture capitalists, but we've had public company CEOs. Uh, Michelle's coming on next week. She's CEO of Cloudflare, but we've had Matthew Prince from Cloudflare, I don't know, 24. Five, $45 billion stock. That may be our biggest CEO. Today, I think his second biggest CEO, Dave Gerard, co-founder, CEO of Upstart, probably one of the hottest stocks of the year, but we're not going to talk about stocks. We may talk about momentum and how he feels about it, right. uh, unrelated to the stock, because we're not, we're not here to, to talk about uh, the actual stock price and, and stuff like that on this show. You can do that all day on StockTwits. But um, He's one of those people like like we have on the show that just makes you feel like we just don't do anything. Like in he left Google in 2012 after helping build Google Cloud. So wow. that's quite a resume. To now uh, running one of the fastest growing lending companies, Upstart. Uh, dollar sign UPST took a public in 2020. It was kind of a slight, not a full on pivot. Uh, after raising uh, celebrity venture capital money, like celebrity meaning Google and other big uh, VCs. We've got a lot of mistakes uh, that he can discuss, uh, but a lot of joy and glory in today's $25 billion company in just uh, about nine years. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. So anyways, I got a lot of questions because we rarely get public company CEOs on but uh, I just want to talk more about uh, the business and the markets and lending and interest rates and how all these things and remote work and pivots and raising venture capital and the long slug of it all. So uh, let's get right to it. Knut, let's dial up Dave. Dave. Hi, guys. Great to be here. You uh it'd be great to be anywhere, but you're not. You're working at home? Yep. Sitting here in my um, spare bedroom that I've been pretty much camping out in for the last uh, year and a half. Tell me, is it harder to yell at employees by Zoom or in person? Oh, it's actually much more efficient. You know, you can just yell at as many as you want and you can even do it with a softer voice so you don't get so hoarse. So yeah, there's some certain advantages to being, um, being remote in terms of yelling efficiency. I think the biggest thing that no one's talking about, but then again, I don't know because I don't run a company, is leadership in a remote world. How, what's the biggest thing that you've known? I mean, there's so much going on. Got a $25 billion company. But like, how do you lead by email and by remote? Yeah, it is a bit of a, a thing. I mean, you you're, you feel like you're on stage a lot more in the sense of, you know, literally sitting there with a microphone in front of you, the lights going on and Zoom, et cetera. So, I mean, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's reminiscent of like Winston Churchill in London in 1940, standing in front of the microphone. I mean, you, you 
you do it with words, whether it's written in an email uh, or, you know, we have very frequent all company uh, meetings. And, and so, you know, you just have these like communication moments that in many ways, I, I honestly feel like it, it's, like I said, efficient, but it just, it just works really well. I mean, all, all hands meetings were, you know, before some people are in the room, some didn't show up. We got two different offices, this and that. Now it's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, but they're all in the same place. They're all a little square in Zoom. But uh, in terms of communication, it's actually not bad. I think you just have to sort of get used to it. And there's a lot of, you know, repetition, repeating the message and reinforcing the message. But in many ways, I, I, I think you have almost a more direct connection to everybody. Let's talk about the business today and then we'll go backwards. So Upstart today, $25 billion company, define it for us here as if you were sitting in front of someone who's never heard of Upstart and I introduced $25 billion company, what is the business and the mission? Yeah, we are a fintech company that is focused on applying artificial intelligence to the problem of consumer lending. And uh, the heart of it is very sophisticated risk models that improve the process of originating consumer loans. Uh, we're a two-sided business. So we have a consumer-facing brand, Upstart, um, and, and we market and attract consumers to that. We refer consumers to bank partners who originate loans using our AI technology. Um, so kind of a two-sided uh, business. Almost all of our revenue comes in the form of fees that banks pay to us for referring consumers to them and for providing the technology to help them originate the loans. And the core technology is what makes it all interesting. You know, the basic idea is with a much smarter, more accurate credit model, you can improve more people at lower loss rates and have, you know, from a consumer perspective, what's, what's not to like about, you know, cheaper access to credit. And on the bank side, you know, more inclusive and more profitable lending. So it is kind of a, a, a super interesting business. The credit score, where, where is that friend, foe, is that, that going to change? What, how does that look in the next 10 years and how does it affect your business? Yeah, I'd just say the credit score has seen better days. I mean, it was invented, you know, 30 plus years ago. And at the time, you know, it was better than the alternative, which was some dude in a suit sitting across the desk from you asking you, you know, questions and, and making a, a judgment call over whether you get a mortgage or a car loan or what have you. And um, the credit score at least puts some sort of numbers to it. But in reality, it's a very, very blunt and inaccurate tool to understand whether, you know, someone's likely to repay a loan. And so, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's, on, it's waning and uh, its influence will wane over time, but it has been kind of heavily institutionalized across, you know, regulation and, and is used by virtually every bank that you could imagine, pretty much all of them. So it's, it's no small um, effort to eradicate it per se. We don't really care about eradicating it. We just want more accurate models that uh, treat people fairly and, 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 and get to better credit outcomes. You know, when you go public, you have two things. You have your business and then you have your public ticker, right? It's, uh, you have no understanding of, of the miracle of momentum and, and obviously earnings and financial metrics can drive momentum in the stock market. And it's a magical mystery miracle when it happens. But how are people discovering the company today? Or is it B2B? Like, how are people discovering you? You meaning investors or you meaning consumers? Oh, consumers, are, consumers, customers. You know, we're kind of a coin-operated business. We spend tens of millions of dollars every month to attract consumers through, 
you know, digital advertising, um, direct mail partners that send us traffic. So it, it's one of these types of businesses where you, you spend a lot and then, you know, if you're good at what you do, you convert it through your funnel and, and create revenue out the other side. And, um, and of course, we're developing a brand. So we're, there's awareness and there's a repeat usage and things like that that start to bring some scale to the business. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's that type of business. And, and fortunately, we've been able to be, you know, both very fast growing as well as profitable. And that's, you know, what I think makes us unique. And so I look at the site today and I can, you know, pay off credit cards. I can consolidate my debt. I can, um, you have a something else button. And then you have, I think what's new is refinance my car, right? So what do you get into next? Or is, is that basically covering the basis or is like eventually anything open, whether it's uh, asset lending or crypto lending or, or home financing? When, how do you know when to turn on something else? Yeah, it's basically um, almost all flavors of lending are ridiculously inefficient just in terms of the inaccuracies and the uh, the sort of waste in the system, if you will. So I guess we view it as trying to take a, a somewhat consumer-centric point of view, which is what are the things that people are borrowing and spending all their money on? And of course, um, credit cards, student loans, um, car loans, and, and then ultimately mortgages is the biggest category. And there's just uh, incredible amounts of inaccuracy across all of them. So our expectation is we will participate in all of them with our bank partners um, because we think you know AI applied to credit is just a you know many trillion dollar opportunity. And it's just a question of when. Um, so we have to sort of quickly move to adapt what we've built in one area and sort of adapt it for the next area. And, and you know, we've done that. We started in unsecured personal lending, um, got into refinancing of auto loans. We're, you know, very soon to launch into direct auto finance, you know, at the dealership, which is our next big effort. Um, we definitely believe, you know, mortgages is a big sector that we will we will play in. And there's also even, um, you know, small business lending, in our view, is a largely unsolved problem if you're an average small business and just need a $80,000, $150,000 loan for something. Just being able to do that quick and easy um, is something that we think is still a, a wide open opportunity. In a world where you've got to know how to run a coin-operated machine, you know, uh, acquiring customers well and then directing them well and having a happy customer, you've kind of figured out that that flywheel. Is there any one thing, like why have you succeeded? I mean, part of the reason the, the stock has momentum, just from, uh, I, you know, I'm, I am a momentum investor, I've been watching the stock, is that you have done something that others haven't. Whether you believe it or not, that's what the market's saying. You know, and so you're getting a multiple that's that's different than the past. What what do you think that you've done differently, or is it any one thing, or is it a combination of things? Well, I th I think the starting point in the market has always been that you know money is the ultimate commodity, and lending is just a heavily commoditized business where everybody's pretty much doing the same thing. And you know, there's a long history of companies that came along and said we have you know, a better mousetrap, we can do smarter lending and we'll have lower loss rates, et cetera. And, you know, they have invariably ended in tears over time. Um, so there's a sort of, there has been for our history, a starting point of disbelief that something could be fundamentally done differently in credit. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we think now is the time and, and why we're able to do it. But for a lot of times we're raising money as a private company, just trying to prove ourselves, you know, there's just a lot of skepticism, honestly. And, and I think in the last year or two, really, the models have really come together and accelerated. 
it, it's just really clear that we've built something different. And, um, and I think the public markets are appreciating that. And it, it, in the end, it does come down to the things public markets care about, which is, which is growth and profits. And we've been able to um, fortunately deliver both of those. And uh, so I feel like there's this kind of belief adoption curve around a company like ours. And just it, there's a long time to get there where you start to see there is something very different going on here. And I think those who, who got down that ado- belief adoption curve faster uh, have been rewarded. I'm, I'm empty nest and you, you were panicked about being an empty nest and I'll waylay those fears later. But I'm, I look at my kids and I Venmo and they saved probably because I help, but they, they save, they don't overspend. It doesn't seem like a credit generation. So who, who is your customer? Who's discovering you in the coin up Google, Facebook world? Who is coming? Uh, our business definitely trends toward uh, sort of millennial, younger generation. I'd say the the median borrower is probably 28, 29 years old. Okay. And and, that, and it's because, uh, you know, we really started that that's a big part of the population that the traditional credit system doesn't recognize or work well with, you know, that they don't have a lot of history in credit, et cetera. And there's definitely this notion of, oh, I don't want to use credit cards. I'm going to use debit cards. But the reality, of course, is consumer spending is very high and, and that hasn't changed and nothing going on out there seems to be reducing the consumer's appetite for spending other than maybe, you know, the pandemic has kept them at home and out of restaurants. But generally speaking, in the megatrend, consumer spending is not slowing down. So it's it's almost hard to imagine that suddenly the need for credit is going to dry up. But um, but yeah, young, young people have very different expectations, how they spend, how they borrow. And it just really represents an opportunity for companies like ours. And in a world where valuations, I call it, we're, we're beyond the spreadsheet here. You're profitable, you're growing, you have a great business, you have a great model, the, the flywheel is working. There's no place in any of your decks or in any of your even last year where you could have seen yourself as a $25 billion company. So how do how do CEOs today come to terms with these numbers and, and how big is the market? And like, how do you deal with all these law of large numbers here? Well, I know when you're, you know, you're going public and you're talking to bankers and things that it's always easy if you look kind of a lot like someone who's already out there and hopefully someone successful that you can say they're kind of like this or the comp is like that. And, you know, we're just one of these cases where some parts of our business look like some other businesses, but as a whole, it, it really is a unique thing. So I would just say bankers and investors at first look kind of go, I'm just not sure how to think about this thing. Is it like an internet marketplace? Is it a lending platform? Is it a software company? And um, so I, I think we had to sort of fight through that. But, you know, like I always say, the most valuable companies in the world aren't like anything else, right? If you think yeah. about Google or you think about Apple, Facebook, there's nobody that they're like, Amazon. So I think uniqueness is a, is a, is a positive attribute, but it does make valuing the company hard. And, you know, of course, look, I'm just sitting here going like you are. I don't I, I only very indirectly affect the stock price. I pretty right. much try to make this business go and, you know, what happens, happens. So uh, who was the North Star then? Who is the company and what is the TAM out there that uh, for someone just tuning in today and says, oh, it pulls up the stock quotes, it's $25 billion company, I like Dave. What, what is the possibility out there? What is the TAM for this and who is the leader? Yeah, I mean, the way I would quantify it is to say, look, you know, 
there are several trillion dollars in loans originated, uh, maybe three trillion in, in loans originated in the U.S. every year, and most of that is just crazily inefficient and can be improved with AI. And we're not going to do all of that today or next year, even the next two, three years. But over time, um, all lending is going to move toward modern math and data science. It's just uh, unquestionable to us. So that's how we think about the TAM. It's, it's you know, we're, we're going to pragmatically go after it, but there's no ceiling that we're going to run into anytime soon because lending is so enormous. I mean, um, just U.S. banks, you know, according to the FDIC, there's something like $400 billion. This is maybe a couple of years old data, $400 billion in net income earned by banks in the U.S. And I mean, that's like twice the amount of profits in the entire uh, technology industry. So just the scale of lending and credit as an industry is just vast. And there's just really not much in terms of applying AI, which is obviously a very modern, leading edge type of technology that's, that's changing industries all around, uh, that are applying it to this mega industry. And that's why we think you know, the opportunity is there. And I think people are seeing our ability to execute against that opportunity. Have you done it? I can't find, but I, don't, I could be wrong. You've ever done a big acquisition or have you? We've done just one acquisition in our history. Earlier this year, we acquired a, a, a company called Prodigy, which is essentially delivering software to car dealerships to help them effectively modernize the process of, of buying and selling cars. And that's um, you know now been integrated and we'll be offering upstart AI-enabled loans through that platform and, and through car dealerships that use that software. Very interesting. And so theoretically, you would do that maybe to break into the mortgage business too? And even crypto one day or something, or do you just think every industry is different? Every industry is different, of course, but you know we look for inefficiencies, right? We're sort of like Jeff Bezos, like you know your margins are opportunity, and and we just look for places. And sometimes you have to look to the securitization market or or some other type of data to see like how this industry works. And I'll you know I'll give you a piece of data that we we find interesting about the mortgage industry. If you looked at the number of mortgages offered to consumers. Um, with sort of middling credit score, back in the early 2000s, you know, before the huge disruption, um, and you compare that to say 2015, you know, post the disruption, um, there's something like a million fewer mortgages originated in 2015, and it just tells us that uh, something happened there. You know, the, the baby went out with the bathwater when suddenly we wanted to. Um, you know, the mortgage crisis happened and banks pulled back and they're getting conservative. But at the same time, suddenly millions, potentially millions of people who are credit worthy don't have access to a reasonably priced mortgage. And so that those are the kind of opportunities we, we like to look and, and reasonably quantify just to see that there's something real there. Very interesting. FinTech's so big, so I, I, I focus on like investing and do-it-yourself and financial services, but your FinTech company, wh- I had never heard of BMPL. We called it Layaway when I used to watch Jefferson's and, and, and the good times, and <laughs> TV in the 70s was about Layaway, and you you know if you couldn't afford the toy, you'd lay it away or, or a couch or whatever. So I, BMPL is a new term to me. Does BMPL disruptive to you or is it disruptive for you? Or how do you embrace or think about that? Um, BNPL has the potential to be, I would say, uh, very disruptive, first and foremost, to you know the Visa, MasterCard, Rails, and that sort of 
strong market position that's been there for a long time and just never been even remotely disrupted because I think BNPL is first and foremost actually about payments more so than about lending. Um, right, because I see like the clothing companies, like 60 bucks people are doing PNPL. So that's what I just said. I don't understand it because it really isn't about lending. It's just about an experience or something. Yeah, it's adjacent to it. But it's just like, you know, credit cards have 30-day grace periods. And, and that was one of the enticements that you know, got people using credit cards. Um, and BNPL might have pay in four or what have you. But you know, ultimately, it, it's breaking that duopoly of, you know, Visa MasterCard, uh, uh, in my view. But with respect to, you know, Upstart, a lot of our loans are used to pay back credit cards. But at the same time, I mean, one thing that's very clear about buy now, pay later is their value prop to the merchant is that they increase the amount that consumers spend. Um, so in any world I live in, if, if you're going to increase the amount consumers spend, you're, you're not going to result in net reduction in consumer debt. It just doesn't seem to add up. So you love it. God bless BNPL. I don't know if I love it or not. I mean, we, we tend to be pro-consumer and um, if it's convenient, it works great. If it gets people sort of over their skis and, and buying more things that they don't really need or want, you know, I'm probably a little less excited about it. Now, is the, over your bet, is there a flashing 10-year rate sign? Do you watch the 10-year rate or and do you watch interest rates? Like if, I, if um, I'm out for dinner with you and uh, who's on speed dial? The bond guys? We're not, we're not a terribly rate sensitive business in the sense that, you know, most of the use of, of our loans, um, I mean, if, if, if you're, I don't know, um, mortgage businesses tend to be very rate sensitive, especially if you're like into mortgage refinance and, and rates go up, suddenly mortgage refi dries up. So the, there's other types of businesses that are just far more rate sensitive than we are. G- generally speaking, most of our loans are used to refinance more expensive flavors of debt. The spread there is pretty significant. So, I mean, fortunately for us, it's it's just not a day-to-day type of concern. All right. So now I think, because it's enough for me, I know enough about the company and how lean it is. Well, I, one more question. AI. What's your definition of AI and what is upstarts? And, and we'll tie it back into, you know, when AI became important to you and Google, et cetera, because you've got a long history at Google it's thrown around loosely, just like uh, blockchains thrown around loosely. What does AI mean to you and the company? Yeah, I mean, AI basically means software that is learning, improving on its own, you know, m- merely by experience, m- merely by the um, growth in, in data that it's used to train. So interaction with the real world is generating data, and that is improving the algorithms bit by bit. And so it's just very sort of sophisticated relationship between algorithms and training data that over time, if, if you sort of grow the amount of training data you have, and then you increase the sophistication of the algorithms and their ability to interpret that data, what you're really doing is, is having a more accurate model. And in, in our case, in, in, in most AI, it really comes down to predicting what's going to happen in the future, which is, you know, notionally sounds like magic. Um, but, but AI does exactly that. It's trying to predict what's going to happen next and what action this particular business should take. So, you know, uh, it's a word thrown about, and I think, um, it's easy for businesses to, to say that, but having an AI system that's in production, meaning it's not somebody sitting in a corner, analyzing data with a spreadsheet and drawing conclusions about it, but actually a system in production that is learning and improving itself in real time. You know, that's the heart of AI. Yeah. So this is the Olympics. I would say Upstart is an Olympic champion because it's achieved momentum. We don't know how long it can last. Obviously, it's driven by fundamentals. 
and the behavior of crowds. Bravo. Congratulations. Uh, you got the gold medal. Uh, everything looks rosy, but upstart has not been a, a smooth ride. Uh, you know, what's momentum today was chop and, and upheaval and stress and not that there's no stress today, but when the flywheel's working and you have a basic understanding and you trust the software and things are working, life is good. Uh, Upstart was not always like that. So take me back to when you decided to start it and what's your thinking? Because you have a great career at Google. What is the trigger point? Yeah, it's certainly not been an easy road. Um, you know, going back to 2011, I had I been at Google, it was coming up on eight years. And certainly it's a great company and, and it would have been uh, in many ways, easy decision just to hang my hat there and punch the ticket for the rest of my career, frankly. I mean, everybody- you had already been there for the Dutch auction or were you after the Dutch auction? I joined probably six months before the IPO. So I, I was there mm-hmm. um, pre-IPO, probably right before the S1 came out. So it, I, 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 through the interview process, the very early days- Google was still a bit of a mystery in terms of nobody really knew how big of a company it actually had already become. So uh, yeah, I was just there for that little period where nobody really knew that much about Google. And then suddenly the S1 hit and people realized this is a multi-billion dollar advertising business. And I think the world was was kind of floored. Um, and I was there from, you know, 15, 1700 people, something like that to, I don't, maybe 40,000 when I left. So it was definitely the, the good years. Um, and, you know, Google's had mostly good years, but but I was like, look, I I you know built this cloud business, and it it, it was always called other, you know, at Google at the time. So <laughs> whatever meeting I was in, it was it was about AdWords and then AdSense and then other, and um, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of the biggest cloud businesses out there, maybe maybe except for Salesforce. You know, Salesforce had was probably the biggest cloud company at the time, maybe still is, and and uh, in any case, uh, you know. I, I just kind of got excited to try to do something on my own. I was in my mid forties and, you know, thought, Hey, if I'm ever going to do this, I might as well do something. And I had a bunch of different ideas and one of them became upstart. And, uh, so I, so I, you know, pulled the trigger and in, in, into something I knew very little about. And, uh, you know, that was both exciting and foolish, but, um, the first product we, we, my co-founders, um, settled on something called an income share agreement was, frankly, a complete failure, um, you know, just enough success to keep us pulling on the string for a year or so. And then at some point I brought my co-founders to a coffee shop and I said, um, we have about three months of cash left and I don't think turning these knobs anymore is going to fix this thing. So maybe <laughs> we should think about something different. And we went through a, a really fast pivot to a, what amounts to something close to what we do today, a consumer loan product based on you know, very fancy math. And, um, and it was sort of a glove save. It was, a you know, one of those trying moments, but we were a small company able to do that. And, and from there, you know, it's been a lot of, we were not the biggest, we were not the first in the industry. So we just had, you know, so much skepticism built in, but, you know, over time I, we felt very convinced on the path we were on and, and what we were doing. And eventually we, we kind of brought the world along with us. So explain income share agreements because I hear about them. I'm not interested in them, but explain what they were even back then. Like you were way ahead of the curve. We're still ahead of the curve. So what are they? Yeah, income share agreement. The notion generally, this goes back to like Milton Friedman type economics, but you um, you receive some money today and in return, you pay back a fraction of what you earn over time, right. over your lifetime perhaps. And 
this notion of sort of, it's almost like selling equity in yourself. And Correct. As, as a good old friend said to me, oh, it sounds like, you know, indentured servitude with a smile. Yeah. And, um, you know, to some extent, that was always the problem. It was like the idea of selling your future income felt almost dystopian to some people. Um, but in any case, it, it, in at least the way we approached it, it didn't scale. I mean, it was a nice little marketplace, but it was a couple of zeros off of the scale we needed to make a real business. And ultimately, we pivoted away from it. Wow. And so talk about who your investors were at the time. Well, I don't know if I want to name all the names. You know, oh, okay. we, had some nice, we had some nice institutional investors early. And, you know, one thing I will generally say is um, note of caution is when you have institutional investors early, you know, it might sound good. You like to have their name attached. But if they decide they're not really excited to lead that A round uh, later, you're going to have a hell of a signaling problem. And, and that's exactly what we had, which was you know, some early name brand investors, including my former employer, uh, who weren't suddenly ready to, to lead the A round. And of course, everyone else in Sand Hill Road says, well, why aren't they leading the round? And so, um, you know, it was one of the earlier lessons learned. I had no experience in fundraising, but I always tell people when they ask me, you know, should I take this check from, you know, big venture firm X or Y for my seed? And I was like, just be careful. Because if they don't want the A, you're, you might find yourself in a tricky position. Yeah, there's so much to learn there. But your experience came out of Google. And so, of course, like you're going to leave. The Google has that reputation. You're not going to say no. But uh, that's something that a lot of people learn the hard way is. Yeah, the, like the easiest day. round we ever funded was our seed round. <laughs> it was just me and I was leaving Google. And, you know, that was enough to get enough interest to put some uh, money together. And I, I wasn't even trying to raise it actually. So it was one of those, like, it, it was the kind of story you read about, which is, wow, you know, I, I wasn't trying to raise money, but people are offering me checks. And, and, but then the rest of the way, it was like, wow, nobody wants to give me money. And, uh, we got to figure out how to get from here to there. So, uh, we had a, a very unique experience. All right. So you, you, you do like a 20, 40% kind of turn, pivot, whatever we're going to call it, into something with more zeros attached. What is it early that matters? Is it recruiting? Is it the product market? Like, where, like what part do you think you guys were great at? Obviously, you, you found some great investors, you found some product market fit, but then what's next? What really gets it going? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we created a pretty good execution machine. And I think it was just the people I got, got in with early and brought on board. And, and, and I just think we, we were able to identify people to join the team that just could, could deal with the chaos, deal with the unknowns, the lack of product market fit. I mean, when we moved from income share agreements to loans, we had about a dozen people and we didn't lose anybody. We, we kept everybody and we just said, Hey, we're going to stop this and start that. Let's go. Um, and I think ever since then, it, it, it is always down to, the people, I mean, we, we have problems every week. It's just, it's just reliable that every, every day you're going to wake up and something's going to hit you in the face. And, but you end up with this paranoia on one side, but on the other side, you have this underlying confidence that this team has been through a lot, really knows how to handle difficult situations. So whatever the world's going to throw at us next week, you know, we're feeling pretty good about. And, and that is really what it is. It, it, it just comes down to who you have on the bench what experience they have working together. So they kind of can just look at each other and say, yep, here we go again. 
and uh, you can execute against that. Because you know, even after we moved to loans, trust me, it was not clear sailing. We had all sorts of problems and 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 issues, and the industry went upside down for a whole year. And so, uh, but all the way through it, we kept the core crew together. And what are the things at Google that you took away that have helped the most? What makes Google so great? Like, I mean, you know, cloud was an asterisk. Uh, when did the light bulb go off for Google? How did it become important? How did cloud become important at Google? Yeah. Like, when did they finally just say, oh, God, this isn't an asterisk anymore? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of, um, I mean, you know, it grew to a billion dollars or so when I was there. And I was always like, hey, when I got there, I thought when it got to 100 million, they would care. And, you know, Google was many billion by then. And by the time it got to a billion, Google was probably 40 or 50 billion. So, you know, it was always this problem of no matter what, it was a single digit percentage of the company. But, you know, I think, um, honestly, if I had to say anything is when Sundar Pichai became president, he was my, my last boss at Google. I think he really saw this thing as, look, we're not just an advertising company, we're a technology company. And there's many things we can be doing here. And um, this cloud business, which I think, I mean, being honest was, was important, but not, not the same level AWS has been at Amazon, it just, it didn't for years have that level of attention or care. And it, the best I, I tried, so part, partially I blame myself for not getting it to that level of attention. Um, there's also some maybe economic reasons why Google would care a little less about a cloud business than would Amazon, given margins in their core businesses, if you will. But in any case, uh, I think Sundar, when he uh, took over, he really understood and saw and appreciated the opportunity and really started to... Um, pour a lot of resources into it. And today, what are the fintech companies that like stand out to you? You know, you're at 25 billion. So, so who's it out there that's doing amazing things, even at scale, small or big? Well, one of the companies I admire just because of their boldness, I would say is Square. And, you know, there, there's, I always think of fintech businesses as you have consumer facing businesses, you have um, merchant facing businesses, and you can have bank and lender facing businesses of that sort. And um, very few have the scale to do something both with consumers and with merchants the way Square does. And that's why I think um, they, if, if you just think about Square being used by millions of merchants around the world and millions having the cash app, um, suddenly they put Bitcoin in the middle of it and you do have a viable means of mechanism for payments. And they actually have critical mass on both the merchant and consumer side to make that happen. And I just kind of see how they've walked down that road and hasn't all played out yet. But to me, it's, it's, it's obvious why, why Jack cares so much about crypto and about Bitcoin um, because he's in position and, and Square is in position to just build an incredible company that, uh, both serves merchants well and, and serves consumers well. And do you think the game, whether he knew it at the beginning or end, is, you know, Visa, MasterCard are railroads, right? I call them 8 to 80 companies. But, you know, railroads every few years hit all-time highs. No matter how bad the economy gets or how good the internet gets, you know, things are moving. Um, do you see MasterCard and Visa as disruptable? And is, is that what Jack sees or is that something that you're rooting for or, or does it matter or is it they'll always be around in America? What's, what's your take there? I, I think they are disruptable. I think they could sort of move to the background a little bit. And 
I don't think Jack cares about disrupting Visa, Mastercard. I just, and I, I don't know him, so honestly, I'm just more reading the tea leaves of what you know the signals you get from Jack. But I don't, I don't think he has it in him to just care passionately about Visa, Mastercard. I think he just wants to enable you know an experience for consumers and, and an opportunity for small businesses uh, that they get in the way of. So, um, so it know, would just happen. I, I, I guess you're right. Like he's, he doesn't wake up like that's not his biggest worry. Yeah, he, he he just has, I think, very clear views of how he thinks things should work. And when, when things in the real world today get in the way of that, he's just going to work his way around them. And, and I think he's doing that exceedingly well right now. Any personal financial passions? Is crypto a passion or interest? No, I haven't really played in the crypto world um, at all, to be honest. And I think just being wrapped up in what I'm trying to do, I haven't had a t- time to give it the attention. I mean, I read about it, learn about it. I, I'm, I'm a sports nut, so I'm super interested in the idea that suddenly college athletes can earn money and um, just what that implies, not just for college athletes, just the broader picture of, of people able to sort of take control of their brand and themselves and you know, between just, just again, the, the changes in the rules, uh, as well as things like NFTs and such. So I, I think there's just a lot of things going on in technology and crypto that are going to unlock a lot of potential for people, pre- especially creative people, athletic people that just didn't have as clear of a path to their own brand. And I, I just, that's some of the stuff I get excited about. And so we talked about panic. There was a real panic in, in March 2020. What Do you remember what it was like at Upstart then? Like what were you were thinking and, and some of the big decisions you made? Yeah, I remember um, my, my co-founder, Anna, sending this message to Paul and I, our three co-founders here, and she said, hey, I, th- I think we're going to have to start asking you know, employees returning from trips to China to stay out of the office for a few days. And I I thought she had just lost her mind. I was like, are, are you kidding me? We're going to tell people to stay home because they were visited China. And, and I just was incredulous that this could really be something. And um, probably a week later that the world shut down <laughs> and suddenly we were, we were remote. So, I mean, we were a company built to be in one room at, at a couple of tables, just working together. So the notion that suddenly we could all be everywhere, and, and frankly, we're spread across the whole U.S. at this point, was about as foreign to me as, as I could have imagined. And and now, it, honestly, it, it feels a little natural. I mean, I'm going on a trip to New York in a couple of weeks, but I've hardly been on a business trip in a year and a half. And where is headquarters? San Francisco? Notionally, it's in um, the, the Bay Area, San Mateo. And then we kind of have a co-headquarters in Columbus, Ohio, which actually has you know more than half our people. Uh, but as of three months ago, we basically decided we're going to hire anywhere in the U.S. And you know the only requirement will really be that you come to one of our offices probably once once a month for kind of a little get together with your team. But we're becoming a, we call it digital first. It's really kind of a remote first like notion, but you know not getting rid of our offices. Very cool. And the the idea of emptiness, you said it, it, it's something that panicked. It was the first thing that came to your mind. I mean, not mean anything. Uh, I'm living an empty nest life. What uh, excites you or panics you about that? <laughs> well, you know, you, you, my wife and I, our life just develops around our kids. And uh, I, I, I loved just being with them, everything they do, their, their sports, their whatever they do. And, and, and just, you know, all of a sudden it's just like, wow, we're not going to get back to this. Once it's gone, it's gone. So you know, that is a scary moment, but 
I, I'm a forever optimist. The change of seasons, I always love. I'm like, wow, the fall's here. It's great. So I'll get my head around it and I'll get excited for the freedom my wife and I will have and all the cool things I'm sure my kids will go do. But there is this like, wow, this only goes in one direction. And that itself is a little scary. And when, were you raised in an entrepreneurial house or, or when did you get into tech? I was about the opposite of that. I grew up outside Boston. My my parents, you know, my dad was was in the military. My mom was a teacher. You know, they were just like thrilled to be able to move to the suburbs and, and buy a home. And and I just grew up in that environment of like, um, you know, no no net worth to speak of. Um, hardworking, both parents working just to get six kids clothed and, and <laughs> fed, et cetera. So, you know, the notion of entrepreneurism didn't frankly hit me at all until I was out in California and, and suddenly it was all around me and I started to go, wow, sure seems to be working for a living. And how'd you pick Google or did they pick you? You know, I, I had been in the Valley for a while. I was, we had our first child about, about to move back to Boston with my wife and, you know, somehow I, I stumbled into this Google thing and uh, I, I didn't know what they were. I mean, nobody knew how big of a success they were, but you know, I ended up in this conversation with, and in the last interview was with Larry Page, and they wanted me to do this like enterprise search technology. They called the Google Search Appliance, and uh, I said to Larry, like, I, I don't know anything about enterprise or enterprise sales <laughs> whatsoever. And Larry said, Ah, that's fine. I'm sure you'll figure it out, which is more or less how how Google operated back then. Well, they had already the interview process, so that's something to learn from. That was not that was probably a grueling internet process. But was he? How old is he now? Are you guys same age, or is he in his fifties? Do you think? Uh, no, he's probably not in his fifties yet. I, I think he's probably mid mid to late forties. So no, Larry and Sergey are both uh, were younger than me, which you know, no no surprise. I'm pretty much older than everybody in the valley at this point. And so, advice that you give your kids that you think. Um, I, I give my nieces and nephews all kinds of advice about, you know, sales and networking. What are the things that uh, you try and get your kids to do? Is it something about reading or is it something about networking? Is there anything that you try and encourage? You know, my kids pretty much don't listen to me, so I'm not, I'm not really sure it matters, but I, they're very, they're very different from me. They're not into technology. They're not, you know, so many people in the Valley are like, Oh, my kids taking the seventh level, you know, coding course and, and writing in Python and this and that. And my, my, my kids are into film and either writing or producing and, and video. They're, they're much more artistic than I am. And um, so I just like get them excited to do what they want to do in their lives and not, uh, and certainly don't worry about what I do or has anything to do with what I do. And, and uh, it seems to work out nicely because they don't, they don't really seem to listen to what I say anyway. <laughs> the AI stuff, where, who's leading that? Like, where's the best recruiting coming? I don't want to give up any secrets, but like, is it, is it U.S. or is it China or, or is like what parts of the country are doing the best work? Well, AI in people that really build models, you know, you, the term data science or data scientist is so overused. It can be like someone who can yes. write an Excel macro or e examine a spreadsheet, but People who really build sophisticated models, you know, typically, you know, writing in Python and, and um, you know, there's very few of them. I just say for every 100 software engineers in the U.S., there's probably one that you might call a machine learning engineer that can actually create models. So it's a it's sort of a rare beast. And, you know, they come out of different Ph.D. programs. Sometimes they, they come with stats backgrounds. Sometimes they come with physics and they can be in high frequency trading. They they end up in a lot of esoteric fields, 
Um, so it, it is like uh, one of the enormous advantages my company has, Upstart has, is is that we've assembled a critical mass of them and they just sort of gravitate towards each other and want to work with others who can help them get better at what they do. So it is a very uh, kind of rare species out there. And, and that's one of the real advantages we have is we've assembled an amazing team and it continues to attract them. And, um, and, and now, of course, being able to hire them anywhere in the U.S. is also a huge advantage. And if you could just take a afternoon off the grid, what is the what is the preferred choice left to your own uh, free time and you can't work and you're not allowed to return email? What would be the thing that uh, helps you refresh? I, I've always been a, a running nut. I ran competitively in high school and college, so always always been a runner, skier, outdoors type person. I just I'm a sports nut. My kids sports, college sports, professional sports, so. You know, th- those kind of things. That's why I, I don't spend all that much time. I'm not, I haven't written a lot of code in a long time. I'm not spending too much time thinking about crypto because I'm not a metaverse guy. I, I really do appreciate the real world and the people in it. So that's where I spend my time. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I hit an age where I'm like, I get it. It's coming hard, but the real world's pretty cool. I really appreciate your time. It's been fun. Um, uh, are you liking, uh, you've done a few podcasts, like, is it something that, like, what do you, are you listening to podcasts or is it just something that you're experimenting with? Like, what, what is it about podcasts? Yeah. You know, I never used to listen to them pre COVID, uh, you know, running or doing whatever doing. I was always listening to music, just got used to, and, and, um, just finally figured out I had a, enough time. I really should be broadening my, my thinking and podcasts are awesome opportunity and, and yours as well as several others that I just got addicted to. And um, so, yeah, it was fun. And then suddenly I thought, wow, I think I could do that. I, I might have something useful to say here and there. So um, it, it is just a chance to sort of like keep stretching your thinking one way or another. And I love to listen to uh, stories from other founders. I invariably learn something and they make me think a little differently about my business in some way because you know, many ways their experiences will parallel mine, but there's always something unique or different that they do or they say or they think about that changes how I come to work the next day. And that's what I, that's what's most valuable to me. Well, congratulations. These things are miracles. You know, it's fun to be able to talk to CEOs and kind of hear the origin story, but also hear how the business is evolving. And uh, Upstart is an amazing company, not a smooth ride, but uh, I'm enjoying the momentum for you. Hope it continues uh, and have a great uh, end of the year. I appreciate your time today, Dave. Thanks, Howard. Thank you, Thanks. Thanks, bye. So there you have it. All right. Big time, bigly CEO. Regular dude, he just hit me up. He goes, hey, I I like your podcast. I'm like, wow. You have some spare time, <laughs> and uh, but he's all business. Yeah, I, I I pride myself on trying to get a chuckle. He's processing a lot. He's of got stuff. a lot of energy. You can see the man. Google. Well, it's pent up, and he's not giving away much. And you see where he like framed. We're running a machine here. We're putting pennies in the in the machine and mm-hmm. turning dials. And when the dials weren't working, no matter how much I tweak these dials, we gotta we gotta find something different. Yep. It's a special type of wiring and that's you know, and then when you hear you come out of Google, that's why Google people are backable. But just because you come out of Google as he as he showed you does not mean it's all roses. Like if they haven't make that pivot, that's a small business. 
you know, so I'm glad we covered that as well. But, you know, these, these, this lending world is a massive world. And, you know, I'm, I'm just starting to hear of Upstart. Think about all the ads that you've been pounded over the head with over the years from American Express and, oh, yeah. and Capital One. Oh. And this is somebody who's just using the internet and lead gen without TV. Maybe they'll get to TV one day. But you just think about what you said, Amazon, your, your margin is my opportunity. Yeah. You know, when we go to college and we'd see Amex all over the place in Capital One and, and here's Upstart doing this stuff and building brand without having to do all that. Right. So uh, great to have CEOs. So you are listening to Panic with Friends. And like I said, we are talking to great entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, traders, investors. This time, uh, Dave Girard, co-founder, CEO of Upstart. Uh, I think it's $25 billion, $300 stock, one of the best performing stocks of the year. Uh, just a regular guy, panicked about the same things other 50-year-old dudes are panicked about, empty nesting and will my kids listen to me, and uh, dealing with a remote company, you know, mm-hmm. people just getting shit done. Uh, our goal here is just to, you know, read the tea leaves, talk to people, get ourselves a little bit ahead of of the world. And, um, if you, uh, like us, just, uh, search my name, Howard Linson on Spotify, Google, uh, we have a YouTube channel, uh, subscribe. You'll get an alert once a week where we uh, do this show. Uh, Knut, thanks for doing this. See everybody soon. Thanks. Stock twits. Howard Linson is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.